0: For the season of Lent, uh, our sermon series is be um, based on the book of Job. And um, one of the books that some of you we've recommended if you want to follow along and read is this book called Trusting uh, God in the Darkness by Christopher Ashe. Um, some of you already have copies if you are interested in this book. Um, it's pretty cheap to get on Amazon, or there's still a few more copies out front of Kelly's uh, office there. that You can grab a book. Um, and I have shamelessly taken the title of that book as, as the title of this sermon series. And um, this morning, we start with this series, with chapter 1. And I've have both chapters printed there, but I just want to read chapter 1. That's all I really have time for today. So hear God's word to us from the book of Job, chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, "From where have you come?" And Satan answered the Lord and said, "From going to and fro from the earth and from waking walking up and down on it." And the Lord said to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil." Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house, that all he does, on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and the possessions have increased in the, his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck them down. The servants struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon them, the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong the word of the Lord Lord uh, this is a difficult story to understand to process Um, we do pray that you meet us in the darkness you meet us in the mystery um, that you show yourself to us this morning um, in the midst of suffering a world of suffering and pain and of evil and deepen our trust in you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. On All Saints Day, uh, November 1st and 1755, there was an earthquake that struck the city of Lisbon, Portugal. Scientists today, kind of looking back at the records of this earthquake, estimated that it was an earthquake of a magnitude of 8.5 and the initial The summer of the earthquake uh, lasted six minutes, and it created in the center of the city of Lisbon uh, massive holes and gaps in the ground that were at least 15 feet wide, and many of the people rushed outside of the city to, it's on the Atlantic coast, to to the water to get away from the earthquake in the center of the city. Forty minutes later, though, a massive tidal wave or tsunami uh, struck the city, and many people perished that were along the coastline. In fact, the, the tsunami was so large uh, that it's said to have actually I mean, hit the country of, of Morocco and killed many, and, and all the way to Brazil, which is across the Atlantic. Um, and if that weren't bad enough, you know, this is 1755, and people light their homes with candles. During the shaking of uh, the, the earthquake, many candles sort of fell over and started fires. And the whole city caught on fire and was in a blaze and was for like 10 days after the earthquake. It's said that uh, you know even to be within 30 feet of those fires that would kill you because of the smoke. The death toll of the Lisbon earthquake is hard to determine, it's many hundreds of years ago, but the estimates range from 12,000 people up to 50,000 people. And at that point in history, uh, it it was considered the worst natural disaster ever. Uh, In the early modern world, um, had had just never seen anything like it. And it's helpful to remember in 1755 is the time of what we call the enlightenment. And this is a time in human history when our confidence and reason and our understanding of the world and the intelligibility and the orderliness of the world was at its all time peak and the Lisbon earthquake just rocked and shaked that confidence to the ground. The Lisbon earthquake actually changed history in terms of how we think about evil and suffering, and it really shook the, the European, European nations and cultures to their core and caused them to question uh, many things. There's a lot of literature and philosophy and responses to this earthquake. Lisbon became kind of like a a byword for natural disaster and evil in the world. But one that some of you might be familiar with is, uh, is actually written by the French philosopher and skeptic Voltaire, his book Candide. I had to read this in high school. I don't know if many of you did. But Candide is a small novel and its satire. And in this novel, uh, Voltaire, um, he's really attacking this uh, German Christian philosopher named Gottfried Leibniz, Um, And his very popular argument um, justifying evil in the world. It's theodicy, right? There's this, a theodicy is a defense of God in the light of evil, right? So Leibniz had this really elaborate, sophisticated uh, theodicy, which basically says that this is the best of all possible worlds. Even the evil in it that happens, it's still the best of all possible worlds. And when something bad happens... It's still for the best, right? And so Voltaire in his novel, Candide, has this character uh, named, well, Candide, and then Professor Pangloss is this guy, and all these terrible, terrible things happen to him over and over again, the most ridiculous evils, and every time Dr. Pangloss says, well, it's the best of all possible worlds. This happened to happen this way, right? Voltaire doesn't try to engage uh, the arguments of Leibniz, he just mocks them mercilessly as absurd. How can you say, in the light of twelve to 50,000 people dying in an earthquake, that this is the best of all possible worlds, right? That this is still a rational part of the world. This is the problem evil. Um, and Voltaire's basic argument is, this is not the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> this is not the best of all possible worlds. And that is the world that Job introduces us to as well, in a very different way. The book of Job confronts us with the problem of evil in a very unvarnished way. It frames the problem very differently than we do. Um, you know, as modern people, really all people, when we're confronted with evil, we ask this question. Well, if, if God is good, if God is almighty, if God is wise, how can evil exist in the world, right? Job forces us to think about the problem of evil in a very different way coming from the opposite direction. You know, we ask, why is there evil in creation? Why does God permit suffering? And Job starts by asking, why is there goodness? Why is there goodness in creation? Why does righteousness exist? What are the reasons to be righteous? And that's what the book, it opens up with this picture of this man, named Job. And Job embodies the fear of the Lord. He embodies moral integrity. That's what you see in the very first verse. He is blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. And because of this, he is is blessed beyond all measure by God. He is wealthy. He is healthy. He's got everything. So Satan comes into the divine presence. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now, the figure of Satan here is quite mysterious, and we ought not to make too much of this figure. Uh, Satan is the one who sows disorder and disaster and chaos in Job's life, but but he's on a chain, if you will. As Martin Luther said, you know, the devil, it's God's devil. (laughs) Job, uh, Satan can only do what uh, God allows him to do, and it's really important to note that after this first two chapters, Satan disappears completely from the book of Job. No more to be mentioned at all. And I think this is very important as we think about the problem of evil, because sometimes we think, well, the problem of evil is this cosmic struggle between God and Satan, and that is not the case. God is 100% in control of all that happens. There's, there's no contest here. And yet, mysteriously, um, Satan is part of um, this opening scene. And his response to God, and Satan really means the challenger, when God says, Have you considered my servant? He responds quite cynically and he says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, you have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan is saying, Job is only righteous because you've blessed him. He has ulterior motives. He only fears you because you give him good things. He doesn't fear you for your sake alone. He fears and trusts you because of all the benefits. But if you remove those benefits, remove all those good things, you'll really see what Job is made of, which is that he really doesn't love you and trust you. It will curse you to your face. The book of Job does address the problem of evil and suffering in the world, but it comes at it from a very different vantage point than we do. It really is asking this question, why be righteous? Why be righteous? Why fear God? Why trust God? What are the reasons for it? And the two questions in particular that hang over Job's whole life in the beginning here are, when he's struck by suffering, are these. Will he continue to fear God, or will he curse God? And will he maintain his, his righteousness, his integrity, or will he let go of it? Now, when evil shows up, our tendency is to want to put God on trial. And this is clearly what Job does. As we move past these opening chapters, we have 39 chapters of... Uh, Job and his friends sort of debating and putting God on trial. So we want to put God on trial, but it's also important for us as we investigate this. It, it's, our tendency is to want to distance ourselves from God and our relationship from God as we as we debate and we consider the problem of evil in the world. But what Job, the book, teaches us is this is that, that the whole point, the whole the whole experience of suffering really raises this fundamental question, is what is the basis of our relationship with God? It forces us to engage the problem of evil in our life, not just as an abstract theoretical problem, but as something deeply personal that forces us to engage God. And the reality is this, is that we are tested. We are on trial. The character of our relationship is revealed in the midst of suffering our relationship with God? How strong is that relationship? What is it based upon? Will we still fear God and trust God even when things in life don't seem to go our way? Or when things actually go horribly, horribly wrong, will we continue to trust God? Is God worthy of worship for his own sake or simply because of the good things he gives us? That's that's really the big question that opens up the book of Job. Now I want to... I struggle a lot with this sermon. It's very hard to... Uh, <laughs> there's so much to say. Uh, and so much of what I have to say, I think, is, feels very inadequate. But such is the problem of suffering and evil. There's a distinction that I want to draw in between the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. I think it's important for us to understand... Um, they are related; evil and suffering are related. But the problem of evils is what philosophers and theologians and college freshmen debate, right? <laughs> uh, these are the arguments, right? Of like, how do we make sense of evil and God's good creation? What rational or intellectual sense can it mean? How is it justified? And actually, these are very important questions. But the problem of suffering is a very different question. It's related, but it's different. The problem of suffering has to do with what happens when evil actually shows up in my life. And in this sense, uh, the problem of suffering evil isn't just an intellectual problem, it's an existential problem. See, it's one thing to have a theory about the existence of evil in the world. It's another thing to have to endure evil in your own life possible to have a very worked out and sophisticated answer and system for why bad things happen to good people or why evil exists in the world. It is another thing altogether to be tested by evil and suffering in your own life. It is even possible for you to come to the conclusion because of evil exists in the world, therefore God does not exist. But when you're suffering... (laughs) Does that help you? Does it help you to not believe in God when you are overwhelmed with suffering? The reality is this. Evil, the actual experience of evil in the midst of suffering, um, having ideas and theories and philosophies and about it does not provide any comfort or relief. See, the problem of suffering deals with what <coughs> what we make of our personal lives before God when evil shows up. It's not just a theoretical problem. It is deeply existential, deeply personal. And the thing about the book of Job is that it's about the problem of suffering, and it forces us to engage God. It calls us to engage God in the midst of suffering. The book of Job is not an intellectual puzzle to solve. It it will be very, very dissatisfying for you once you get to the end of the bo- book if you're looking for specific reasons and answers for why God permits evil in the world. What is the book about then? It's about trusting God in the darkness. I love, you know, it's a very simple title of that book. That, but that's what the book is about. It's, learning, it's about trusting God in the darkness it gives us a theology of suffering which is very different from trying to give us solutions and answers to the problem of evil. It teaches us not only how to think about the presence of evil in the world, but how to handle it, how to engage it when it shows up in our own life. See, the thing about suffering, real suffering, is that it will always attack your relationship with God. (laughs) When it shows up, the immediate response is, why God? What are you doing? What did I do wrong? It creates doubt. It challenges our relationship. And one of the beautiful things about the book of Job is that it's, it, it, it leaves room for doubt. It creates all this space for us to wrestle with God. But the other thing about suffering is not only does it challenge our relationship to God, but it actually challenges our relationship to ourself. It, it, it causes us to doubt our very worth, and value as creatures, and this is what one of the things you see with Job, where he wishes that he had never been born. And I know many of you have wished that before, in the midst of suffering. I wish I had never been born. Suffering challenges that, but it also challenges our sense of the intelligibility of the world, of its that it has meaning and purpose and significance, and that it actually is a place of justice, and that the things I do matter. Job is a book about learning to trust God in the darkness and to live in this world. Now, as we begin our exploration of Job, um, it's important for you to understand that the book of Job is not a book for spiritual tourists. It's not not a book for spiritual tourists. The New York Times has this regular feature um, in its travel section about 36 hours in all these great cities, right? 36 hours in Rome or 36 hours in London, 36 hours in Mexico City. These are cities that are just massive and like, you could barely scratch the surface of them you know, in 36 hours, I mean. Um, but that's okay, because you're just a tourist, right? I get a little flavor of the city. But we all know that there are certain places in the world um, where there's, you, there's no such thing as being a tourist there. There's no 36 hours, right? Because the journey is too long, the land is too dangerous, the language and culture is completely foreign, there are no, nothing, there are no amenities, it's, it's just, it's not accessible to, without a deep commitment. And the book of Job is a little bit like that. You can't sort of fly in for a weekend in the book of Job and then leave and kind of get what you need out of it. And it's very much like suffering in that regard, right? Suffering is not something you're like, okay, let, let's, I've got 36 hours. Let's figure this out, right? First of all, the book of Job is a long book. It's 42 chapters. And if you've ever read the book of Job, this feels like 39 chapters too long, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> there's only three chapters of narrative, the first two and the last. And the in-between is all poetry. It's all poetry. And it's actually poetry that, that is the conflicting voices of four, five different men and then God at the end. And what you realize as you read this is actually not everything that Job's friends say is actually accurate or true to what is really going on. So you have to pay really close attention to what's going on here, and it's easy just to get lost in all that. You have to read to the end. John Calvin uh, preached 143 sermons on Job. What do you guys think? Go for it. Can you imagine? I would be dead before that. If you guys didn't kill me, I'm not gonna (laughs) preach. I'm not gonna preach 143 sermons on Job. All you're going to get is six sermons for the season of Lent. Okay. I I want to just sort of, in the the last part of this sermon, I just want to give you a couple higher-level reflections on how this book can begin to help you think about suffering in your own life, how we kind of get oriented to what this book is about. And the first thing I think that the book of Job teaches us is to is to resist simplistic answers to the problem of suffering in our lives. The Book of Job tells us we have to resist simplistic answers to the, to the problem of suffering in our life. The Book of Job is not an easy book to understand. And, and in part, that's by design, because suffering is not easy to understand. It's not simple. And, and in ancient culture, and I actually think it still holds true for us today, there is a way of thinking about suffering and evil in the world. Um, it's, you know, theologians call this the principle of retribution. You all know this principle, and the principle of retribution is very simple. It's this: those who act wickedly suffer; those who act righteously are blessed. Right? If you do good things, you will be blessed, and good will happen to you. If you do bad things, you will suffer evil. Right? That's the principle of retribution. Right? Everybody gets what they deserve. And that's really what Job and his friends are debating throughout the book, because Job and Job's friends really cannot make sense of his suffering. In varying degrees, they all think that in one way or another, Job might have done something, and he's not really coming clean on it. Because no person suffers as Job suffers that didn't have some secret sin, right, in his life. They just can't make sense of a world <laughs> that doesn't operate in this way, right? And, and incidentally, because they cannot understand or imagine a world in which this principle of retribution isn't operating, they actually are very bad at comforting Job in his suffering. They can offer really no comfort because they're like, well, you sinned, <laughs> you've got to figure this out, right? But Job insists that he is innocent. Job doesn't claim to be without sin, or have never having sinned, but and it's very clear, and God affirms this. Job did nothing wrong. There's nothing that Job did to deserve the suffering he received. He is righteous. See, the reality is is more complex, and so the the book of Job it doesn't it doesn't overturn this principle of retribution. there is a sense that this really is true and that in many ways, a lot of suffering in our lives is because we've done bad things, right? That, that, that principle doesn't go away. And ordinarily, when we live righteously, we are blessed. But there's, it's actually reality is way more complex than that. Sometimes the righteous flourish. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the wicked suffer. Sometimes they don't. The world doesn't run in a strict, perfect, symmetrical way according to God's justice. And what Job directs us to is beyond not just God's justice, but to God's wisdom. That actually, that God in his wisdom has allowed, mysteriously, for the presence of evil in this world. And there are things that we cannot grasp in God's counsel for why evil exists. Now, when we are confronted with suffering in our life, it is very natural for us to ask the why question. Why? Why did this happen to me? Why, God, what did I do? What are the reasons? Did I do something wrong? See, our instinct, and this is very natural, Job Job does this as well, our our instinct is just to look for reasons. If only I could understand why this this terrible thing happened, maybe I, maybe I can be okay with it. Maybe I'd be able to endure. And perhaps in some, in some situations um, I actually think having reasons could help. I would say those are, would be mild forms of suffering. <laughs> reasons can help us. But having an answer to question, the why question that satisfies my own understanding, one of the things that it's about is is I can still stay in control right like if I knew the reasons allow something to come into my life or why this terrible thing to happen I can be like okay I can keep going along with your plan there's a way in which we, we can still sort of feel like we're in control of what's going on in the world but what happens what happen, what would happen if God would give you the answers or reasons and you disagreed with them you're like I disagree Lord These are not good reasons Do do you all of a sudden say, I'm not going to trust you anymore. But that's the whole thing about suffering is is it forces us to sort of nakedly trust God. And by nakedly, I mean like, I don't have an assist in that, you know, I have all these blessings and I have all these other things. I'm like, it's just, I'm holding on to God and God alone and I have no other reason to hold on to God except that God is God. See, a lot of times... We, we want that why question answered, and, and it is a way for us to kind of do a shortcut around having to trust God. But even if you had the answers, right? Even if God were to give you the answers, and you were to find them adequate and satisfactory, would they actually help you in your suffering? If God were to say, this is the reason why this bad thing has happened to you, and you were like, okay, I understand, would it help you? Again, Maybe but not in most situations. See, knowing exactly why you're suffering does not magically take the pain away. And this this is the second point I wanna make. Suffering requires us, something of us. um, It requires an emotional engagement of our deepest self with God. Suffering requires an emotional engagement with the deepest part of who we are before the Lord. One of the problems um, for looking for answers to the why question when we suffer is that it tends to want to turn suffering into an intellectual problem to be solved. right? So if, I, if I had the reasons, if I could just understand why, if, if, I, if I had a better theology of evil and suffering, then I think I could endure this, this thing that is happening to me. But friends... I've said this to you before, because I'm notoriously bad at this. You can't think your way through suffering. You cannot think your way through suffering. There is no idea, there there is no argument, there is no theory, there is no truth that will allow you to overcome faithfully suffering. The only way through it is emotionally. <laughs> it's better, it's, it's actually true to say you have to feel your way through suffering than to think your way through it. And By feel, and I'm not saying you turn off your mind by no means whatsoever, but the idea of feeling your way through suffering is this, is that actually this is not just in my head, it's my whole life, it's the core of who I am that's at stake here. That's why um, 97% of this book is poetry and not narrative or proverbs. Because poetry requires you to engage in a very different way. It slows you down big time. If you're going to understand poetry, I'm going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. But poetry, I mean, it it, it calls us to engage at a deeper level. That's what suffering calls us to do as well. And what you see with Job, and again, Job is our model here. Job expresses all of emotion across the board from resignation to trust to doubt to fury to anger to fear he has a whole process and this book makes space for it and when you really suffer you go through a whole range of emotions one thing that the book does not do is it refuses to rationalize the presence of evil within creation and within our lives It does not say this is the best of all possible worlds and that all the bad things that happened to you, that's the best of all things and it was for the best reasons. The presence of evil in God's good creation is mysterious, a kind of negative mystery and we don't understand why, but refusing to rationalize evil and to, to make it into a part of this system is really important because evil is not necessary to the goodness of creation. It does exist. It is here, and we have to engage it. But we should never doubt or wonder whether evil should be resisted, whether God, uh, in his purposes, promises the defeat of evil in our lives and in this world. We should never be in doubt about that. God rarely gives us in our lives the reasons for the suffering we endure. Um, But he does give us something that's far more important. He gives us something that we actually need, an essential way, to endure suffering. He gives us Himself. He gives us Himself. He gives us His presence in the midst of suffering. And here's where I want to draw our attention back to the mystery of the cross. The cross of Christ is the Christian response to evil and suffering. The cross is God's response to the problem of evil. From the cross, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus entered fully into the experience of suffering and injustice. Like Job, Jesus experienced a sense of God abandonment. But unlike Job... He was not rescued in the end. (laughs) He died and he descended to the grave, to hell. And like Job, Jesus was an innocent man. But unlike Job, Job was a sinner. He didn't suffer because he was a sinner, but he was a sinner. Jesus was not a sinner. He had committed no sin and yet he suffered and he died unjustly. Friends, the cross of Christ is God's answer to the problem of evil and suffering. But I want you to consider what kind of an answer is this, right? What kind of an answer is it? It is not a rational explanation. It is not a justification for evil and its presence in the world. The cross is a confrontation with evil. The cross is a comfort in the midst of our experience of evil. The cross is a promise of evil's ultimate defeat in the world. It is a promise of evil's ultimate defeat in your life. It is a promise that in Christ, God is with us in the midst, in the depths, in the hells, in the suffering, to the bitter end. And it is a promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. As Paul says in Romans of the cross and its promise that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything present nor the powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.